You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. Eczema, also known as dermatitis, is a non-contagious inflammatory dry skin condition that can affect people from early infancy to old age. There are seven different forms. The most common, atopic eczema, affects one in five children and one in ten adults across the UK. As part of its annual awareness push, the National Eczema Society is calling upon people affected by the condition to share their experience of living with it. The charity's CEO, Andrew Proctor, explains why. I think there is a lot of stigma still attached to eczema. If you're living with a condition that is visible, particularly when it's on your face and hands, a lot of people feel self-conscious about that. And that drives self-isolation and a feeling of a stigma. And we want to try and help people talk about it and normalise it some more and just share their experience and just be open about it. And stress is one of the biggest triggers of eczema. Often that comes from bottling things up and just being very frustrated and finding life very difficult. So if you can talk to people, particularly friends and family, about just how tough it can be, that can be very helpful for people in terms of trying to come to terms with managing this very complex condition. There's a link to the National Eczema Society on our wordonhealth.com website to enable anyone willing to share their story publicly to get in touch with you. You mentioned it's a complex condition. We can't yet cure it. Where are we at in terms of understanding the cause? We don't know fully what the causes are. It's complex because it involves our immune system, our genetics and the environment for most people. It's basically your immune system is stuck on high alert. It means you're much more susceptible to things in the environment that might trigger some inflammation in the skin. And coupled with that is our body's natural skin barrier. If you have eczema, the skin is very dry and that's because of protein deficiency in the skin. But it means that irritants from in the environment like dust and house dust mites and pollen and things like that can get into the skin and trigger inflammation as well. So it's a complicated thing and it comes and goes and it generally starts in childhood for most people and for some children it can continue until adolescence when it goes away and then for some other children about 10% or so it can continue into adulthood and we're learning so much in research at the moment so we don't know what all the causes are so the purpose and focus of treatment is actually trying to manage the symptoms and keep the disease under control. I understand it's a very individual condition that may require a multifaceted treatment regime and what works for one patient may not work for another a further factor being that over time some treatments can stop working requiring a reappraisal. I see a key focus of the charity's activities in recent years has been to ensure all patients have access to the full range of treatments that are available on the NHS via their GP and secondary care and also to highlight the importance of in-person appointments with doctors as opposed to telephone consultations. Most people find it very hard to describe symptoms fully and accurately over the phone. Just getting hold of a a GP in-person appointment can be difficult but it's so important if you can't get a timely appointment and then the flare-up then continues, then you're into often a situation where it's harder to clear and manage just because of the delay. It's generally regarded as being an exciting time in eczema research. Three new treatments are available from dermatologists should you require their intervention with, I see on your website, a pipeline of 70 initiatives aimed at improving understanding and treatment of eczema in its various guises. It's not just a future hope, which I know a lot of people aspire to in lots of areas. There are some really fundamental improvements coming through, which are brilliant. And it's not just for people with more severe eczema. There's other things coming through as well to help people with more milder symptoms, which can be really debilitating as well. So yes, it is really exciting. My grateful thanks to Andrew Proctor. For further information and links through to the National Eczema,
Exmoor Society, log onto our website, www.wordandhealth.com. You can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our address being at Word on Health. Word on Health. Feel very best of health. Alopecia has become a general term for hair loss. Typically, the head is involved, but the severity of hair loss can vary from a small area on the head to the entire body. Sue Schilling is from the charity Alopecia UK. Generically, people talk about androgenetic alopecia, that's male pattern baldness and female pattern baldness. One is a more thinning hair and male pattern is the more traditional receding hair. There's something called telogenic effluvium, which is about the follicles resting. There's a form of alopecia that's called traction alopecia, which is about hair being pulled consistently in the same place and then therefore damaging the follicles. There's chemo-induced alopecia. There are scarring alopecia where the follicles actually get scarred as the hair falls out. That's frontal fibrosing alopecia and lichen planar pilaris. And then the one that lots of people will have heard about recently, alopecia areata. And alopecia areata comes in three forms. Areata itself, which is patchy hair loss. Totalis, which is just full head hair loss. Or universalis, which is no hair anywhere on the body. And when we look around the research world, probably the form of alopecia that's had most work on it is areata. We understand that it is an autoimmune response. We don't understand why some people have a response that triggers their hair to fall out and other people don't. There is no suggestion, for example, that people are much more stressed than other people in the community who don't have hair loss. There's a really clear link to the immune system, but the actual mechanism for the trigger remains unclear. Figures for the exact number of people with each of those forms of hair loss are hard to pin down. It's estimated by the age of 50, Pattern hair loss affects about half of men, myself included, and a quarter of women. A recent study concluded that 400,000 people across the UK live with a form of alopecia areata, and we shouldn't underestimate the impact of hair loss, should we? It's really important to say that the extent of hair loss is not a good indicator of the extent of impact on a person and their life. For many, many people, hair is a really central part of their appearance and self-image, and so it can have a really negative impact on self-esteem, body image, and of course, confidence, which you can imagine has a really broad effect on how your everyday functioning goes. It is clear to us that people feel hopeless. Alopecia is still poorly understood. There is no cure and it's unpredictable. And that leads to feelings of despair, trauma, shock, And people report a disrupted identity, looking in the mirror and not knowing who they are. That's incredibly distressing. Dependent on your type of hair loss, there are only a limited number of treatments. Although I understand there's a new treatment going through clinical trials that offers hope for one in three people living with alopecia areata. If you're concerned about hair loss, you should talk to your GP. And I understand from there on in, one in four patients are referred on to a dermatologist on the NHS. And dependent where you are in the UK, that can mean a lengthy wait. And not insignificant number of people choose to take the private medicine route. What are your thoughts on that? I would say do your research. Go on to the British Association of Dermatology or Trichology membership bodies and check that somebody is a legitimate clinician in this field. But buyer beware, because there are plenty of people out there who are trying to sell you a miracle cure that just simply doesn't exist. 
So if you cannot see that somebody is a registered clinician or a registered trichologist at a governing body, then my very strong advice is to not go there. Rubbing lotions and potions that have been made in somebody's kitchen are not known to help. And finally, Sue, as someone who lives with a form of alopecia, what tips could you provide people coming to terms with living with the condition? Get that medical advice, get yourself referred to dermatology, educate yourself about the condition and the treatments that are out there so that you can speak your own truth about it. Educate yourself about your NHS trust because there's a postcode lottery about what help you can get in what trust. Find other people who get it. Join a community of other people like you so that you can work through or understand what's normal and what's not normal and then work out what you want. Some people will want to camouflage with wigs and makeup. Some people won't. I'd say experiment. And when you get to that stage and are comfortable with how you look, then consider helping someone else who's got alopecia because that circle of giving back is really good for building confidence and for your self-esteem and how you live. My grateful thanks to Sue Schilling from Alopecia UK. For further information and links through to the charity, log on to our website, www.weddonhealth.com. You can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our address being at Word on Health. Keeping you in touch with the health and lifestyle issues that matter. This is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Here in the UK, over 900,000 people live with a neurodegenerative disorder with prevalence, it's claimed, sadly set to increase in the years ahead. Six out of every 10 dementia patients will be living with Alzheimer's disease, whilst around one in every 20 patients will be below the age of 65. The risk of Alzheimer's increases with age, affecting an estimated one in 14 people over the age of 65 and one in every six over the age of 80. Tim Beanland is from the Alzheimer's Society. Memory loss is the classical symptom, so your short-term memory, you forget things you've been told, forget where you've put something and can't retrace your steps to find it. The part of the brain that we call the hippocampus, which is involved in memory, gets damaged. That tends to be the first symptom. Everyone's different, but in general. And then other things will come along. So people will have problems with language. So often they will struggle to find a word for something and they'll call something a thingamajig or um and ah, or have to delay. Or they'll have problems with decision-making and planning planning ahead and organising things. So we all get a little bit more forgetful as we get old. But for someone with dementia or Alzheimer's, it really does start to affect their daily life. Whilst I understand the exact cause of Alzheimer's disease is not yet fully understood, a number of things are thought to increase your risk of developing the condition. A family history, untreated depression, although it has to be said depression can also be one of the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, lifestyle factors and conditions associated with cardiovascular disease also increase your risk. As I mentioned in my introduction, risk increases with age, but it isn't an automatic consequence of ageing, is it? It's definitely not normal ageing. A symptom we picked up on was, we called it rapid forgetting. A good example of that, if you're on the phone to someone and having a conversation, if five minutes in they're coming back and asking you something they asked you at the start, they've obviously forgotten exactly what you told them. And so forgetting something over a few minutes like that is a sign that something's amiss.
this. We've got a, a thing on our website that people can download, which you can record your symptoms and take them along to the GP. And that will actually help you have a good conversation with the doctor. I would take someone along with you if you can. It's often helpful. The GP, if you've got someone that lives with you or a close friend, will often talk to them as well. Because one of the features of Alzheimer's is people can often not be as aware as they might of the changes. Where are things at with regards to treatments and a cure? If you've got Alzheimer's, there are changes in your brain. People might have heard of things called plaques and tangles. These are proteins in your brain that basically cause brain cells to disconnect and eventually to die. We don't have a treatment that stops that process. There are some really exciting drugs in development which are targeting particularly that amyloid, which is this misfolded protein, and they show promising signs. At the moment, the treatments we've got are what we call symptomatic treatments. They treat the symptoms, but they don't treat the disease. That's a bit like taking paracetamol if you've got toothache. It's taking the edge off the pain, but it's not treating the underlying infection in your tooth. Research shows that developing Alzheimer's or dementia has overtaken cancer as our number one health concern. Are there things that we can do to reduce our risk? About 40% of cases can be prevented or the risk really reduced through lifestyle factors, avoiding things that affect your heart and your circulation. So don't be overweight, um, eat a healthy diet. Physical exercise is really important. It generates chemicals in the brain, which nerve cells really love. Depression is a thing which may increased dementia so if you're feeling very low get that sorted keep yourself mentally active and socially active things like keep doing your crosswords and your reading and your discussion groups but make those challenging it's not enough just to keep doing the crossword and being good at it feeling that's enough socially do try and get out and meet people keep your circle of friends because that is helping your brain build up this buffer if you like against dementia Alzheimer's is a progressive condition. What is the care and support focus after diagnosis? People often think most of the care is medical care, but that's only really a small part. So there's an awful lot more support people can get. Talking to dementia support workers and dementia advisors, which we have at Alzheimer's Society, is really important because they can help you navigate through the support. The system is quite fragmented, and so often people get a diagnosis and are report showed three and five didn't get enough post-diagnostic support. And it's partly they don't know what's available, what's out there. There is support from psychologists, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, speech therapists, support workers. You should be able to go back to your GP and get a proper annual review once a year. The emphasis in a lot of these is the behavioural changes, the relationships. And the burden of the disease doesn't just fall on the shoulders of the person living with it, does it? No, not at all. As somebody's dementia or Alzheimer's gets worse, often a family member will need to pick up a lot of the caring. Those carers themselves need support. So Alzheimer's Society is about supporting family carers so they can be their best for supporting the person. As a carer, you need to look after yourself because if you're not well, if you're stressed, then you won't be able to give your best for the person. And caring for somebody with dementia, certainly as it takes hold, is very challenging. The needs of family and carers to help people living with dementia stay independent at home as long as possible has been the focus of very recent research funded by the Alzheimer's Society, led by Professor Claudia Cooper at Queen Mary's University in London. I'm delighted to say she joins me on the line now. Professor Cooper, could you explain the rationale behind the research you and your team have undertaken? 
if you get a better understanding of what it's like, if you walk in the person's shoes, as it were, then it can help you to understand what their experience is and so help to support them. So understand that when behaviour changes, for example, it's because they might be responding with confusion to some of the things that they experience. Look at what coping strategies they use. Sometimes what we say is that it becomes more difficult as you live with dementia for you to change. And so sometimes people around you need to change when a situation or relationship's not working. But it's really important as a society that we do give carers support. And too often family carers are reaching crisis point. One in five reported having to admit their loved one to an A&E due to lack of support. So that's what's behind my research programme is to think, how do we get the best support to as many any family carers throughout the UK as we possibly can. So talk me through the project. This has been a wonderful opportunity that the Alzheimer's Society has given us. They funded us as a centre of excellence for five years and this gave us the resources to work with family carers and people living with dementia and lots of stakeholders to develop the intervention, the help. As a carer said to me, I wanted to help make what I wish I'd had. Because actually, when people are caring for someone with dementia, they don't have much time. So if they go and see somebody and they find that they're working through a manual of all the information that they might possibly want and all the help, and it's not particularly tailored to their situation, then they can quickly become quite disenfranchised. So what we realised people needed was the information that was relevant to them in the way that they needed it. So what happens if you're having our intervention? You meet six to eight times with a facilitator who doesn't need to have a clinical background because that's how you get things out to lots of people is you make it something that lots of people can deliver. And in the first session, we say, what's important to you and your loved one with dementia? What do you most need for that person to live as well as they can with dementia over the next six to 12 months. And because we know it's what people want, what will help them to stay living in their own home? And people say a huge range of things, but they might say, well, as a family carer, I need support because I'm at breaking point. The person with dementia needs to sleep. So just take those two goals. And then we have these carefully designed, what we call modules, which we say, okay, so what do you want to start on? I want to start with the sleep. And then we take them through all the tips that can help in a very interactive way in which they tell us about their situation. And we work through their goals. And then after they've had those six to eight sessions, we then have monthly phone calls with the same person, because what people also want is someone to talk to over time. And the sessions are flexible. They can be on Zoom. They can be on the phone. They can be face to face. Sometimes the family carer and the person living with dementia want to do it together. Sometimes the family carer says that would be confusing for the person. They're too confused now. I'll come alone and then I'll think about how to use the information. So lots of flexibility, short adaptable sessions. And what we found, because we're coming to the end of our trial of this now, so we can say that 85% of people who were offered our intervention had at least five out of the sessions. And that compares favourably 
to other interventions that are currently in use when they were trialled, which people attended a little bit less of. So what we're interested in and what I've been talking to the Alzheimer's Society about is why is that? What is it about this new programme? We don't know how effective it is yet because we're waiting for our trial results. We've got to wait for the numbers. But people vote with their feet, don't they? So, you know, if people are keeping turning up, they don't have to. It suggests that there's something helpful. And I think that this really positive result is probably about the personalisation. And that's not a new thought because all over the NHS, people are talking about how you need to personalise care. But this is a very practical way of doing it. The other thing, of course, is that it's the pandemic and we did this over Zoom. And before the pandemic, we never dreamt that we could deliver all of these interventions and that we could do so much over Zoom. Although we worried that it would be less available if it wasn't face to face, I think the fact that you can talk on Zoom and the phone may, I don't know, but that might have helped too. If the findings come back to confirm this approach has had the beneficial impact you believe, what next? The next stage in research is, is what we call an implementation study which is where you say, okay, it worked in the rarefied atmosphere of a research trial. But what happens in a busy NHS setting if you say to people, right, you will train you, now you can deliver this to your clients. So what we'll do is we'll do a next study where we take about 100 people, we'll have to get some more funding for this, and offer it to everybody. So we're not asking does it work relative to control? We say, well, we know from a trial what it does in a condition, but how? what actually happens in practice? Are people just too busy to do it? Or what, what helps them to get round to it? And what helps family carers to know to ask for it and so forth? My grateful thanks to Professor Claudia Cooper and to Tim Beanland from the Alzheimer's Society that we heard from earlier. To link through to the charity for further help and support, log on to our website, www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordandhealth.com. As ever, you can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our address being at Word on Health. Word on Health. On air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health. Your personal prescription for your very best of health.